Welcome to the Postscript. Uh, I mentioned my recommendation for the episode American Circle. I thought of that actually because I recently read it, but also because when that book came out, there was a lot of controversy with Bret Easton Ellis if it was like a misogynistic piece. Uh, there's a lot of violence towards women. And um, he was kind of like a controversial character in a similar way that Last Montreal has been. He was for a bit. I mean, I don't think that kind of stuff exists around Bret Easton Ellis so much now. A lot of that stuff got defunct after the book was read because I think parts of the script was leaked, some of the explicit stuff and that was talked about. And there was this big situation around, you know, this book and... Uh, it had a reputation of being like a monstrous novel. I feel like that's a bit of a thing of the past, people being upset by the contents of books, unless <laughs> it has some political relevance yeah. these days. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it can happen still, but that was one of the like really big ones uh, from our recent... As I said, it was accused of being misogynistic and uh, it was adapted for film by Mary Harron. And the film was good. It has its own legacy. There's a lot of stuff like the... the intro sequence inspired like uh, the Dexter intro sequence where you have like nice things, food prepared really, really cleanly and it's kind of implicating murder. And there's a lot of scenes from the book that are really well adapted. There's this scene where businessmen show off their credit cards. A lot of the stuff in the movies have become memes and stuff. Yeah. Like it, it does have its own legacy yeah. and its own like history and people commenting on it and laughing about specific stuff yeah. like the card scene especially. Mm. Yeah, it's not so much an issue now, but like back in the 90s, discussing whether or not there were good female directors could do that sort of stuff. And you could very easily just point to American Psycho. Don't come talking to me about are female directors capable of making, you know, this type of suspense right. full and intense film. It's incredibly a silly thing to yeah. even debate. It's not relevant now, but, you know, even back then. It's a dismissive attitude yeah. that's been very prevalent throughout history in any form of art. And I also think that the film does a lot in terms of of dismissing their misogynistic take of the book. Because like both the writer and director, they're female and the way they adapt scenes like the perspective of the women and how they integrate a lot of stuff. They do a really good job in terms of adapting it in an interesting way. You know, the scene where he, he murders his uh, business associate while talking about Hugh Lewis and the news. And the, the way he kind of combines, you know, in the book he has these chapters where he's just talking about Whitney Houston's career as a musician going through the album song for song, like a serious music critic, really well written and quite interesting, actually. You feel really drawn to just going out checking their music when you read those chapters. Yeah, like the scenes in the movie where yeah. he's discussing Hugh in the news, like you, you imagine mm. that, like the way he's describing it mm. sounds really interesting and then yeah. you listen to the album and it's kind of disappointing. <laughs> yeah, and there's a double layer to that. It's the character talking, but it's also Brett Easton Ellis having a really sharp sense of, you know, criticism and culture. Right. And um, the way they adapt that stuff into the film, they're kind of integrating into narrative. It's typically scenes where he's with his friends or with some people and he starts to talk about music in this inane manner where they're not interested at all. And he's just in his own thing and right. typically about to do some sadistic Murder. shit. So they adapt it really well in a lot of ways. At the same time... That does have a different sort of quality to it than, than uh, thinking about music and discussing it sort of in your own head, contra giving people long exposés on what you think about music when they're clearly not interested in it. Yeah. Well, in the book, it's almost like pure musical um, criticism, almost. 
Right. <laughs> but he's not telling it to people. Or is no, he? no, no, no. Yeah, right. No, it's just because like this two... chapter is about Phil Collins. You know, he projects some of the Patrick Bateman character into that as well. But a lot of it is almost just like you open up a paper and read like a really good piece of musical journalism. I like that sometimes. I like mm. when you, like we discussed earlier mm. with Nymphomaniac, mm. the way he's often just going off these fucking rants about random stuff. Mm. I don't think it necessarily works well there all the time, mm. but I, I do like it sometimes in media when you mm. go into these almost nonfiction places, mm. like in Moby Dick. When there's a lot of information about whaling. I know a lot of people bemoan these chapters in Moby Dick. I find them really fascinating. Like the, I haven't read it, but just, I'm actually looking forward to reading it. Oh, it's, it's, the language looks so enticing. Oh, it's so, so lush. It's so yeah. beautifully written. Yeah. I love that book. But a lot of people hate the chapters on whaling because it's, it's almost like reading a nonfiction book from the 1800s about whaling. And I find that super fascinating. Yeah. But uh, others are like, when, when are we going to get to the part about killing the whale? But you know, I have a feeling that some of that stuff also has to do with it being like a book people read at school. Uh, yeah, a lot of people feel obligated to read it. A, yeah. a lot of people are obligated to read it through school or university or college or whatever. Which is, you know, never a good thing. And it's viewed as this sort of essential pillar mm. of Western and especially American literature yeah. that along with The Great Gatsby, of course, The Great Gatsby is a lot shorter. Easier uh, to But Moby Dick is a huge book. So, so it does get a lot of unfair commentary from people who aren't really interested in that kind of stuff at all if you really take it on its own premise as a book written in its time period and stuff it's just really and I, I find it really enjoyable the, the, the language that, yeah. is so beautiful apparently um the lighthouse film uh, recent film the lighthouse uses a lot of that similar language which is also very lush and interesting yes it just rolls off the mm. tongue it's really just gorgeous the thing that i really want to talk about american psycho is like is the adaptation itself. Because I feel like the film is good. I like them separately a lot. But there's some aspects of the, the book itself that are, are really interesting and might be interesting in a later adaptation or something. And um, like There's more stuff there you can do differently well, in a movie or whatever. Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, how explicit it is. I mean, there was a limit to how explicit you could be back in the 90s yeah. for that kind of film and that kind of audience, I think. I mean, also, it was already kind of groundbreaking as a movie in its yeah. time for being as explicit yeah. as it was. So, yeah, I think you're right. You probably couldn't have went much more explicit than that. But it's also about how the character is treated. There's something quite a lot more scary about the Patrick Bateman. You know, Christian Bale is cast beautifully and he does a great job. But there's something somewhat more monotone and systematic and, you know, obsessive. I mean, this element of whether or not the things he's doing is true... You know, in the film, it's kind of hinting that, oh, this was all his imagination. The book plays with that sort of stuff as well, but it doesn't fall on the side as the film does. You know, the film isn't explicit about that either. It's interpretation, but I think it works better in the book. And one of the things that it does really well in the book, I mean, the, the book is told from a first-person perspective, but in, like, the latter parts when he has his, like, most serious breakdowns, he starts to talk in a third-person point of view, and it's, you know, it's quite experimental. Like some of the chapters are, are like musical reviews and he plays around with things. I mean, it's, um, you know, every social situation he comes into. First thing he does is name the type of clothes, the brand of clothes, all those kind of really superficial things. Summarize the first paragraph. He goes thoroughly through them and doing that continuously throughout the book, it might sound boring. 
but it's done in a way that sounds to me like it's more grounding. Like it does. I mean, it's really interesting, and it's it has an intensity to it. It's done really well, actually. It's difficult to pull off something that sounds so monotone, but still, it just talks about his mania. You get inside his head in a really interesting way. But I mean, in the book, it sounds like it's really serving a function. Mm. It certainly does in the movie, mm. where it, it is an extension of his personality. Mm. I know a lot of people really hate when books get too descriptive. Mm. I've never quite understood mm. that because, in my opinion, it often makes it sets the scene, like it makes stuff more believable. Of course, it can get if it really slogs down with too much descriptiveness instead of moving the plot along, it can get quite distracting. But again, that can serve a function mm. like. Um, in search of lost time or whatever, where it really has this sort of um, dreamlike or mm. almost uh, sort of stream of consciousness uh, vibe to it. But mm. Um, mm. when it's used to a very specific effect, like in this book, uh, I take it, I think it's really nice. Mm. I think, uh, especially if you do like here, where it's clearly connected to his psyche mm. and his detachment from real human emotions, so it's all superficial. Mm. And I find it interesting that it goes into third person towards the end as well, because a lot of the times, as you know, I'm a huge true crime fan, and mm. a lot of times when serial killers start confessing stuff, they often go into third yeah. person yeah. to disassociate mm. with the stuff they've done. Often either to fake it and seem like they've gone mentally, like to, to create this sort of a, uh, I was mad when I did it, mm. fake defense uh, for the court system, or because they genuinely find the... Not necessarily acts themselves, but being forced to describe yourself doing it. Yeah. Uh, so distressing that yeah, you, yeah. you have to sort of pull yourself out of the situation. Absolutely. And this book is really well researched in that sense. I mean, the book is it's deeply explicit in terms of violence and mutilation. But there's something mundane about the way it's described as well that's kind of doubly disturbing. And the film deals with it to some degree as well. But, you know, there's a certain laziness to, you know, he just leaves bits and traces of things that have happened around his apartment. It smells horrible. It's just for long periods of time, like he's really sloppy about getting caught. And in many situations, you feel like, how could he not be caught? They're just not expecting it of this type of person. He should have been caught at that point. And he kind of feels that way as well. And uh, he's very desperate and even confesses. That scene's also in the film. That's also very true to life. Yeah. Because like Jeffrey Dahmer, for instance, mm. like he was really sloppy and mm. a lot like some of some of his victims escaped and stuff and went to the police and they were like no no he's just uh, he's just confused he's my boyfriend he just gave him to me and the police gave them back to him and where he, whereas the he went on and killed him so people Jesus just don't expect Christ. this stuff to happen but also there was just so much sloppy police work back in the day mm. and probably still is today but a lot of the stuff had like the routines have been because of all these serial killer like instances mm. Which is a fairly new phenomenon, like the the prevalence of it, not the existence of it. Yeah. But it's it's fascinating because it's almost like a sort of a cultural thing, and also like how there's been trends in it, like we've discussed earlier. Like I recommended the book called The Man from the Train, and mm. during the early 1900s, there was this trend of axe murders. For mm. instance. And uh, does Patrick Bateman uh, use use an axe in in the book too, or is this just in the movie? You know, he uses so many different things. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things the film does really nicely is that implicates things, particularly the first parts of the movie. It doesn't show the violence, it shows the result of the violence. And the book does that as well, as well as being really explicit. So, I mean, you get the feeling that there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, sometimes it kind of ends at the situations and starts somewhere completely different. So there's a, there's a time gap. It was adapted well, and in a way that was very 
useful at the time, but I think it could be adapted differently and very interestingly again. As I said, the film isn't really unpleasant. It's a suspense film about a crazy character that's really well made. In my opinion, there's something comedic yeah. about the character yeah, in the movie. The comedy is there in the book as well. It's really funny. Right, uh, but you don't really feel as if Christian Bale's character, he's never really scary no, in the movie. I agree. And in, in some ways, he's not so scary in the book either. I mean, I think he's pretty well captured, cast and directed and written. That's a pretty good job of that. I mean, Christian Bale does a great, great yeah. job. But I feel like that book deserves an unpleasant movie, like something right. that's properly unpleasant, willing to push those. Because I mean, the thing that it, it talks about, I mean, it's a satire. I feel like just a bit more succinct in the book than in the film. But, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, some of our stories have been adapted many times. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of like, Dracula movies or Jesus movies, that many, many well, that's, iterations. That, that's how art has always been, like from, yeah. from Mesopotamian myths and, yeah. and the Greeks and the Romans and onwards, you have these sort of interpretations yeah. and reinterpretations of interpretations mm. and all the way through classical drama and yeah. stuff. And I love that. And I love seeing like... It doesn't invalidate one interpretation, right? Oh, absolutely not. And in many ways it can enrich it. And, and you have like specific narrative. And that's transferred to different contexts, different settings, like just a different actor. You know, you have Dracula movies, but you also have specifically Nosferatu movies because you have the like original Nosferatu movies from the 20s by Murnau, which is amazing, like this black and white classic. Yeah. And then you have the 70s version by uh, Werner Herzog with Klaus Kinski. Amazing. Also a German film, but um, has like a focus on the plague. And it's, in many ways, it's quite a feminist movie, yeah. Like the strong characters is the female Lamina character. And then you have like an American kind of adaptation called Shadow of a Vampire about the filming of the first Nosferatu where Willem Dafoe plays uh, this uh, character. I just love that exploration of that kind of story in different ways. Uh, of course, those different interpretations are mm. all reflected in what we do in the shadows, yeah. the different <laughs> yeah, types of vampires, true. right? So yeah. you have that legacy as well. <laughs> yeah, very uh, true. But it's, it is funny. I think there's a problem in doing these types of reinterpretations when it comes to movies, because especially in the Hollywood paradigm, mm. where it's often connected to making money and not mm. an artistic reinterpretation of stuff. Yeah. That's not often the case in Europe and in, in Australia, for instance. Like uh, I was listening to uh, Red Letter Media on YouTube yeah. discussing some movies they'd watched, uh, some horror movies. And one of them was, I think it's an Australian movie called Relic. And they were discussing the differences in how often horror movies are sort of given the go-ahead in, for instance, Australia versus in America, where it's often yeah. about money. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, it's like this board of Australian like bureaucrats mm -hmm. that are like deciding where the budget goes to this year, right? Yeah, so like they're the movie. cultural uh, yeah, board. So, yeah. So there's this, this sense that all this Hollywood dross, all this shit, mm. uh, all this garbage that's released on Hulu or on Netflix and stuff. Mm. That's a, a totally different process because it's so tainted by capitalism. Mm. Whereas where you go through bureaucracy and stuff, that has its own issues, of course. But there's this sense of at least somebody went through this and saw if it had some artistic merit. Of course, yeah. having people deciding what has artistic merit and what not also has a lot of implications. But, I mean, but like commercial merit is also important. And I often think that this is like whether or not the producer is invested and understands the property. Right. Like you can definitely do a, a Hollywood. I mean, in some ways, take something like The Thing. 
John Carpenter remake of like uh, old black and white. Yeah. And, and also David Cronenberg's The Fly. I mean, those are Hollywood remakes of older kind of B-movie films that kind of really redefine really interestingly. And Oh, yeah, yeah. So, the, I mean, the potential... There's not some impossible yeah. bridge yeah. to gap. It's mm. not like movies made in Hollywood not, or like reboots or, mm. or uh, like reimaginings cannot be made in an artistically interesting mm. way. But I think it's fascinating the way that it, the process is often mm. tainted by the need to put people in theaters, mm. like the need to sell tickets, often paints the process. Whereas I do think there's a lot of artistic, sort of um, interesting artistic visions, but I think a lot of them ultimately are crushed beneath the system that places too much value on like uh, how many can pay for the mm. movie, right? Have you seen this film uh, by Spike Jones called Adaptation? I've seen some of it. I think I, I've seen like half of it. Or yeah, I, I really like this movie. And the, the premise is that Charlie Kaufman, who's written a, a successful screenplay of an actual film called Inja Malkovich. So it's Nicolas Cage playing the actual scriptwriter, Charlie Kaufman, and his fictional twin brother, Donald Kaufman. And he's, he's hired in to adapt a book called The Orchid Thief. That's the premise of the movie. And there's also a book called The Orchid Thief that he was also asked to adapt. So it's kind of a very like a meta thing. It had, plays a lot on, on meta. Yeah, and it's, it's known as one of Nicolas Cage's uh, best performances. Yeah, he plays amazing. Of course, I mean, there's something cynical about it because the Orchid Theatre, I think, was like a, a best-selling kind of thing and he finds it really difficult to write a script. And it's only because he's like had this comedic hit, I think, that he can do something interesting with this. And then he makes this amazing meta-narrative film which is has all these layers about, you know, how difficult it is to write and uh, the kind of rules you have to make to be like a serious, authentic, creative and then, you know, not put in fake suspense, which, of course, he, he does as part of the humoristic element. And the way he deals with the idea of adaptation is so beautiful in that film. Uh, very enjoyable. And of course, it is a movie too. So yeah. That's, yeah. that sort of meta-narrative. Mm. Fascinating. One thing I always think about is, uh, is Kevin Smith's, uh, one of his speeches he gave about his work on a Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Uh, where he ends up with this absurd producer who just insists on having a huge spider in the script just because he thinks spiders are scary or whatever. And he tries to be relatable, like, you and me, Kevin, we're from the streets. Yeah. Like, you're not from the streets, you're a hairdresser. or whatever. And it's just absurd, like, the many crazy characters uh, and sort of rules you have to abide by in the Hollywood world. And also how many of the people at the top are just these talentless actual hacks, like useless pieces in suits that may make these huge creative decisions mm. without being artists at all mm. in any sense so it's it's kind of terrifying yeah it's obviously a, a difficult job they're in the business of making money you know and yeah. whether the film is good or not isn't really as relevant as but the, i mean then you have producers who, who manage to do both you know uh, and you get the zeitgeist you get the talent and uh, you get a bit of luck but there's also this sense of there's less trust in directors like often these days in in the not like specifically in the hollywood system Directors are sort of valued on their ability to do what the sort of uh, yeah. the, the studio wants. Mm. Whereas in like the seventies, especially, you had these huge American auteurs mm. that that really worked within the studio mm. system, sixties and seventies, where they were able to really have strong creative visions with the backing of a studio system. These days, there are fewer and fewer of them. Like you have, like you have Quentin Tarantino, right, and Christopher Nolan, and and a couple, but. 
apart from those, you really have to deal with the studio in a major way. Yeah, I know. Most of these uh, classic directors, even Spielberg probably has to go through a quagmire uh, of producers in terms of getting stuff made. And like Martin if- Scorsese had to, had to go to Netflix yeah. to make his uh, Irishman, which mm. was an interesting project. It's uh, three and a half hours long and a lot of de-aged uh, Robert De Niro <laughs> and Joe Pesci. So it has some very good scenes. I haven't gotten around. Yeah, but that, that movie would just not fly in theaters today. People mm. wouldn't have the patience for it. And uh, it would never get the green light from a, a big studio. Anyway, you know, I've been watching a really great series recently. This much I know is true. You heard about it? I have not. It's like a, it's an HBO, like an eight episode based on a book by Wally Lamb. I haven't read that either. But probably really good based on the series at least. And um, Mark Ruffalo plays twin brothers, one of whom challenge. And several challenges or is he? Yeah, well, he's, you know, it's not explicitly spoken about what his condition is, like mentally or physically. It's not like they say it's, there's a definite difference between them as brothers. And there's a situation of self-mutilation that leads to him being put in jail. It's difficult to describe how good the series is. It's so vulnerable. You have like Mark Ruffalo, it's the best stuff he's done. He is a good actor, but this is so new. And he has like the, the kid version of himself. These young kids, they're really good. And then like the mid-aged, like teenage version. They're also really good. And um, some of the trivia behind it, apparently they filmed half of the series with Mark Ruffalo. He lost 10 pounds and then they waited a few months and he put on a lot of weight and he played the other brother. It's obviously the same person, but you know, the physicality is different. It's played differently. And right. you can't use prosthetic to make someone look convincingly overweight in that way no you'll you'll end up with like gary oldman in in the um, the biopic where he played winston churchill where he wears this fat yeah. suit and it's just darkest hour i think yeah it's just a bit strange yeah. sometimes it can work but well often it hinders micro movements in the face yeah. so you, you yeah. it looks a bit dead anyway uh so series is it's kind of heartbreaking to watch it's the same director who did uh, blue valentines and place Beyond the pines I feel this kind of really transcends what he's done before. It's very vulnerable, very touching. I think you'd enjoy that. What do you call it? This much I know is true. This much I know is true. When does it take place? Like, what's the... Well, it's over a period of time, like, through this guy's life. Yeah, I get that. But uh, like, and um, the contemporary setting, is it more or less... I would say it's, it's set probably when the book was written originally. Right. It's not that explicit. Where is it? Yeah, it's set to America. No, but I mean, where, where, where? do you Yeah, it's it? an HBO production. Right, right. It's in my pocket. Oh, I see. I see. Jolly good. Jolly good. And have you seen it? Well, mainly I'm, I've, I've just been reading. I'm reading The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Yeah. Trollfjelle. So, yeah. I love it. It's a great book. He's just such a wonderful writer. Like, on a superficial level, there's very little going on. Mm. Although there is some very, like, very serious stuff going on. Plot-wise, it's very slow-paced. But the language is so beautiful and the, also the implications of a lot of stuff. Mm. Like there's so little that's said explicitly. Mm. So it really takes you so seriously as a reader. And it, it assumes that you're able to sort of take in these nuances. And because of that, it's just so satisfying to read. Mm. Because it's, um, it's quite secretive in a way with how much that's not being said. And the characters are funny and it's just, it's very like droll at times. Mm. It's, it's uh, a lot of absurd people. I have read Death in Venice. How does it compare? Death in Venice is a lot more somber. It's a lot more, it's a lot more sad. Uh, Death in Venice is really quite depressing, I think. Mm. And also deals with a totally different subject matter. This one is more 
I've heard it described as really slow and difficult to get through. I, I don't think that at all. I, I find it really enjoyable. Like it, it takes time, but it's like enjoying a good meal. It's, um, it's really enjoyable. And it's, it's more, of, I guess, like the character is much younger, for instance. He's, uh, but it's also at this, uh, this home for tuberculosis patients, the late 1800s. It's just an interesting setting. Like the whole thing is just very interesting to me. And you have all these people come up there to the mountain to sort of get well or die or whatever. I recommend it. That's mm. my second recommendation <laughs> for today. There's a film, I mean, it's not an adaptation of it, but it has a similar kind of setting called A Cure for Wellness. Yeah, I hated that movie. It was terrible. I thought it was okay. Some things I liked about it. I think it had a kind of strong start. Yeah, yeah, that's then it. Then it just yeah. completely yeah. fell apart. The setup was really nice. Yeah. And I love the lo- location. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. initially it's very mm-hmm. strong visually. and But the plot is just so bad towards the end. It's just yeah. mind-bogglingly. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets very silly and, and kind of genre tropey. Yeah. But does that remind you at all about Magic Mountain? Very superficially. Okay. Not really. I mean, it, it is this sort of a reconvalence home for... Mm-hmm patients to take the air up in up in the mountains that was very common though back in the day okay. it was incredibly common all throughout the 1800s and early 1900s because there was no real cure for tuberculosis so often you were just sent up there for the good air right yeah so you often see it referenced in books from the period but not necessarily dealing specifically with it i know i think the gambler by dostoevsky also is set in a sort of simple oh, yeah. setting if i'm not mistaken but um, it's fascinating because it's also like a glimpse into a time period and a specific time and place that's just fascinating on its own. Mm. And then you have a sort of compelling narrative and characters around it. So yeah, that's, that's really what I've been doing. It's a, it's a long book. It's a long read, but it's fascinating. Sometimes it's nice to have these big projects that delve into. Yeah, I think I'm going to miss it when I'm finished. Is it, like a, is it juicy in a way that you're kind of enjoying like the sentences? Yeah, it's very juicy. It's a, a big juicy burger. <laughs> just the language is so good, and the and the just the philosophical anecdotes and um, like in contrast to *Nymphomaniac*, for instance, mm. I find all the anecdotes and like it's all very tied to the persons, and mm. the the characters are very believable in their own viewpoints. Mm. They're very grounded in a sense, uh, even if they're kind of absurd, and like they all have their verbal tics, mm. and like he's very precise about language and how like certain people pronounce things. Like mm. there's this Italian that sort of acts as this moral guide for our young intrepid adventurer. And he, he's sort of condescending and obnoxious and he always um, pronounces his S's very clearly. Like he speaks German, but he, he's from Italy, but he speaks perfect German. But in some cases he over announces this stuff. So it's like, he says yes, but instead it's yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Just very clearly. It sounds it's creepy. sort of funny and mm. it's creepy and it's, yeah. And the stuff he says is like correct, but he says it in a condescending tone. Yeah. And, it's, and it's like he treats the, the main character like a moron when he's clearly not a moron. <laughs> so it's funny. So it has some good characters then. Yeah, it, and it, it, some good like tension between characters, lots yeah. of good tension. Characters act one way, but then you find out stuff about them that puts it in different lights. And it's, it's very delightful that way. It's just a very dense and rich book. Very juicy, big juicy burger. Sometimes these old monoliths of culture like Don Quixote or Madame Bovary or Moby Dick. Moby Dick from afar, they look quite, you know, dry and difficult to deal with. But oftentimes they're quite fun and uh, well-written. I think a lot of the times it depends on how you approach these things. If you approach mm-hmm. it from a point of view of, 
I'm going to read this big, heavy, you know, big cultural touchstone that uh, is so important to people. Then, then often I think you might be a bit overwhelmed. But mm. if you just take it on its own and just read it. Uh, and I mean, if you don't enjoy it, then just put it mm. away. Nobody's forcing you, like mm. if you're an adult. Well, unless you're in school. Unless you're in school, of course. But if you're reading it for yourself, a lot of that just falls away mm. and you can, you can appreciate it for what it is. Because I know a lot of the stuff I read back in high school, I didn't appreciate it, even yeah. though I appreciate it now. Yeah. I didn't appreciate it then because being forced to do stuff, it just it puts a totally different color on things. I was quite surprised, actually, when I read Madame Bovary. Because I just had this idea that it was dry in some ways. But it's language is very sort of engaging. A lot like, like a modern uh, novel, in a yeah. sense. Like it has a drive and characters and very enjoyable reads. Yeah, I, I find often a lot of the, the classics are classics for a reason. Mm. And it's because they're good. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can be surprised. But often the surprise is that it's so easy to read. Yeah. Like, and it flows well. Mm. I, I was I was surprised when I read uh, War and Peace by uh, Leo Tolstoy. Yeah. Because it, it really reads quite modern. Like, And it, the pacing is good, in my opinion. Like, mm. it's huge, but it's it's fun to read. Mm. So you, you turn the pages without, like, you're not stuck. Like, some, some older books, some classics you do get stuck with. Like, yeah. I know a lot of people have problems reading Ulysses, for instance, mm. and other stuff by um, James Joyce, mm. who is notoriously like uh, obtuse and like <laughs> uh, uses very strange words and often like uh, nonsensical words, and uh, yeah, it can be very labyrinthine to navigate. I guess it's like um, part of a cultural hierarchy as well in terms of being a page turner, something that's just really enjoyable, fast paced to read. Today, you might find that stuff at like a grocery store or something. A gas station. Yeah. yeah. And you wouldn't expect that same kind of dynamic with an older volume of Dusty Law. No, because it's something you, you associated with junk literature, right? Mm. But that's such a stupid way of thinking about it because you can write very compelling and nuanced and dense literature that's easy to read. And you can make movies like that that are easy to watch. That is true. I think we can end on that note. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. We'll see you. Yeah, thanks for listening. Want to get in touch? Just send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. Music today was made by Umulio. That's Sverre Ogor and Jus Karning. That's it for now. Have a good one. Till next time. See ya. Bye-bye.